If you would, pull out your Bibles to Mark 11. And those of you, and I'm sure all of you were paying attention last week, we're going to be skipping verses 10, 32 through 52. That's going to come back in the next week. And Mark 11 fits well with today. So Mark 11, 1 through 10. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Well, I never get sick until this last week. I know that it may sound like I have a smoker's cough, so uh, we'll see how long my voice holds out. I was joking, well, half-joking, that uh, if I can't get through the sermon, I'll just email you all the manuscripts and you can read it for yourself. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus stood trial before Pontius Pilate, there was only one charge that concerned the Roman governor of Judea. Pilate did not care that Jesus had claimed authority to forgive sins. Mark 2, 7. Pilate did not care that Jesus had claimed authority over the Sabbath day, Mark 2, 28. Pilate did not care that Jesus had cleansed the temple, trampling all over the authority of the scribes and the priesthood, Mark chapter 11 and verse 18. Pilate did not care that Jesus had predicted the destruction of the temple, or that he said that he would rebuild the temple in three days, Mark 14, 58. Pilate did not care that Jesus had claimed equality with God or that he had claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man who will be seated at the right hand of power and will come on the clouds of heaven, Mark 14, 61. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the rest of the Jewish leaders, they are the ones who, who cared about all of those claims that Jesus made, considering them to be blasphemous. And it was for those claims that Jesus was handed over to Pilate in the first place. But Pilate was not concerned with what he considered to be a Jewish squabble over religion. When they brought Jesus before Pilate, his response had, be, had been, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But there was one and only one charge that concerned Pilate. It was only when he heard that Jesus had claimed to be the king of the Jews that he began to take interest 
in Jesus' case because that charge was political. Rome allowed for no king other than Caesar. So John records in John chapter 18, So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now Jesus' response to Pilate invites our attention this morning because in his response, Jesus affirms three truths that are of central importance to our text from Mark 11 this morning. Number one, Jesus affirms to Pilate that he is indeed a king. He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. He is a king. Number two, Jesus affirms he's not the kind of king that the world recognizes. He says, my kingdom and my kingship are not of this world, yet they are no less real. In fact, Jesus' kingship and his kingdom are far more real and far more enduring than any king or any kingdom this world has ever known. And number three, Jesus affirms that his reign is a reign of truth and his kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Therefore, Jesus says, only those who are of the truth will recognize his reign, submit to his kingly authority, and enter into his everlasting kingdom. The question that you ought to be asking yourselves this morning is, am I of the truth? What does that mean to be of the truth? These three truths are crucial to understanding what's going on in Mark chapter 11, when on what has become known as Palm Sunday, Jesus mounted onto that donkey and rode into Jerusalem amid shouts of Hosanna from the crowd of disciples and blasphemy from the Pharisees. The triumphal entry is recorded in all four Gospels, and my intent this morning is not only to walk through Mark's version of the events, but also to glean from Matthew's and Luke's and John's as well, in order to get an idea of just what exactly is transpiring and why it matters. For in the triumphal entry, Jesus is publicly declaring himself to be king. And we need all four witnesses to discern just what kind of king Jesus is. When we come to Mark 11.1, 1, we have arrived at the last week of Jesus' life, which means that Mark, Mark dedicates fully one-third of his gospel to the events of Holy Week. As we will see, Mark's version of the triumphal entry is 
rather sparse. It provides us with only the most basic details of Palm Sunday. The other Gospels are needed to fill in the gaps that Mark leaves. Mark begins with Jesus' approach to Jerusalem, the procuring of the donkey's colt. So look with me at Mark 11.1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, or said to them rather, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. At the end of Mark 10, which we'll actually get to next week on Easter morning, Jesus was in Jericho, right? There on the banks of the Jordan River, some 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem and some 3,500 feet lower in elevation. At that time, Jesus was accompanied by a great crowd, we read in Mark 10, 46, a great crowd of pilgrims who were making the journey, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Now, in Mark 11, 1, we find that this crowd of pilgrims have arrived at the outskirts of Jerusalem. So following the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, they first would have come to Bethany on the southeastern side of the Mount of Olives, you remember that it's Bethany where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead some maybe three or four months earlier. And it's in Bethany that he's going to spend the next four nights of Passover week, Sunday night through Wednesday night. Then, after arriving at Bethany, they would climb up the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, and there on the top of the Mount of Olives, there would be a small village by the name of Bethpage. Bethpage is the village in front of the disciples to which Jesus sends them to get this donkey's colt. Now, the word for donkey's colt, or the word for donkey, rather, can be used either of a donkey or a horse in Mark's version, but the other Gospels, Matthew and John, for instance, make clear that this is the donkey, or this is the colt, rather, of a donkey, and that's clearly what Mark intends as well. And that may sound strange to us. I mean, why? why? Why does Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey when all of the other pilgrims are going to walk the road into Jerusalem and pass through the gate? Why, why include this detail in the triumphal entry narrative? What's so important about Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey? Well, the answer lies in a prophecy that's found in Zechariah chapter 9, which is not actually referenced by Mark, but is included in Matthew and John's version. For instance, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew writes that this took place, all right, Jesus riding in on the donkey's colt, this took place in order to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
the full of a beast of burden. So I'm going to ask you to turn back with me to Zechariah chapter 9 because I want to make some points from that prophecy because I think what Jesus is doing in, in sending his disciples to go get this donkey's colt, mounting upon this donkey, and using that as his mode of entrance into Jerusalem, I think he is consciously taking that messianic prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, and he is fulfilling it in himself. He is, he is showing himself to be the Messiah of whom Zechariah spoke. So Zechariah chapter 9, if you go to Matthew's gospel and turn left a couple of books, you'll be there. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. It goes like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And I think against this backdrop of Zechariah chapter 9, we can see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going public with his messiahship for those who know the Old Testament, for those who have eyes to see. And the reason this is so interesting is because up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus hasn't allowed anyone to talk about who he is. He's been very cautious about guarding his identity. In fact, everyone that he has healed, everyone from whom he has cast out a demon, he's commanded to silence so that they would not speak of his power or his authority or his identity. And we established that the reason why Jesus was silencing everyone and keeping them from talking about him is because he didn't want false ideas of who the Messiah was and what the Messiah had come to do to get in the way of what Jesus had come to be and come to do. See, in the popular conception the word Messiah meant something other than what Jesus intended. The word Messiah conjured up images of a military hero like King David who would conquer the Romans and the Gentiles by the power of the sword and drive them out of Israel and restore the kingdom and the glory to Israel. But that's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus had come to be. And that's not the kind of king that Jesus had come to be, and that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus had come to establish. But now, now at the start of Passover week, a week that is going to culminate in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, the time has come for Jesus to declare himself. And the way that he chose to do so was by consciously fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy of Israel's promised king, thereby taking upon himself all of the attributes of that king which Zechariah attributes to him. And I think in Zechariah 9, 9, and 10, we can see four distinct and crucial attributes of 
the messianic king that Jesus is taking upon himself by riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey's colt. Number one, Jesus is declaring himself to be a righteous king. Zechariah said, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous is he. He is holy and he is undefiled. And he stands, therefore, in marked contrast to all of the other kings Israel had ever ever known. See, that was the problem with David, the greatest of all of the kings of Israel. David was too much like us. He was flawed. He was sinful. He was unrighteous. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but he himself was beset by sin, just like we are. Therefore, David was a man in need of salvation, just like we are. Therefore, he is incapable of providing us with the salvation that we need. God's king, God's Messiah, God's savior needed to be righteous, unlike David, unlike all of the other kings. And that's the kind of king that Zechariah says the Messiah will be. Sinless and righteous altogether. Number two, he is a saving king. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. Now, Zechariah doesn't make clear the way in which this messianic king will accomplish salvation, but Jesus has made it clear now three times in the last three chapters. Mark 8, 31, when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to sinners and they're going to put him to death. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. Mark 9, 31, when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. They're going to crucify him. They're going to put him to death. On the third day, he's going to rise again. Mark 10, 33 to 34, same thing. In other words, Jesus is beginning to fill in the picture that was started by Zechariah chapter 9. He is going to save his people by suffering. He's going to save his people by dying, and he's going to save his people by rising again. In fact, just a few verses earlier in Mark 10.45, which we'll be covering next week, Jesus had given the clearest indication yet of the manner in which he's going to save his people. He said in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the coming king is a righteous king, and he's a saving king, and the way in which he's going to save is by becoming a ransom, a righteous ransom for the sins of his people. Thirdly, he's a humble king. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This humble, donkey-riding king is then set in opposition in Zechariah 9.10 to the chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow, which God will, will cut off from Israel. In other words, the humility of this coming king will be demonstrated by the fact that he rides into Jerusalem not on a chariot, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Why? Because he's not coming to conquer by the power of the sword. 
He's coming to conquer by suffering and dying as a sacrifice for his people. Finally, in Zechariah, we learn that this coming king is a global king. Zechariah 9.10, And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He's not coming to Zion to restore the kingdom to Israel. He's coming to Zion to establish a kingdom that will spread to the ends of the earth and encompass those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's why it's not only believing Jews who gather to celebrate Palm Sunday, but it's the redeemed of every nation and every tribe and every tongue, everyone whom this promised king has spoken peace to. So this is what was there for all to see on that Palm Sunday when Jesus mounted on this donkey's colt and rode into the holy city amid shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. This was there. This is what Jesus was doing. He was visibly, physically fulfilling a messianic prophecy. And those who knew the prophecy could watch what was unfolding before their eyes, and they could see the Messiah coming into his kingdom. And some that day saw it, and some did not. Two categories of pilgrims that day who lined the road leading up to Jerusalem. And Mark highlights one of those groups, and then we're going to pull in Luke and John to highlight the second group. Look with me at verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now what happened on the road to Jerusalem seems kind of foreign to us. Like, we don't really know why they're doing this. But it wouldn't have seemed so strange in the first century world. What's going on seems to be a spontaneous gesture of praise that has its roots both in Jewish and in Greco-Roman culture. For instance, when Jehu was appointed king of Israel in 2 Kings 9.13, those in attendance had taken off their garments and had spread them on the steps under his feet. When the Roman general Cato retired from military service, his soldiers had taken off their garments and spread them on the ground before him for him to walk upon. When Simon the Hasmonean had entered Jerusalem during the Maccabean revolt, he was welcome amidst the waving of palm branches and songs of praise. So in the ancient world, this was the way that you honored a king who was coming into his kingdom. You spread out your garments on the road before him, and you waved palm branches in celebration of his arrival. The word Hosanna that they're shouting is a transliterated Hebrew word which means something like save us or save us now. And it's a prayer, an urgent prayer for God's saving action. And then the cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a quotation from Psalm 118, 25, and 26, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. 
Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So it's an expression of of messianic hope. It's an expression of the hope of salvation. In other words, the many who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem by spreading their cloaks on the road, waving their palm branches, and shouting Hosanna, and quoting from Psalm 118, they're demonstrating that they understand who Jesus is. And they understand what he's come to do. Like the 12, they probably didn't understand fully. They probably didn't understand everything. But they got it. Here's what they knew. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised King. And Jesus is bringing the promised salvation. He's bringing the promised kingdom. But who were these people? Were they, as has so often been preached, including by myself, I'm sure, the fickle crowd who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna on Sunday and crucify, crucify on Friday? Well, no, that's not true. It makes for some really good sermons, but it's not true. There's no reason to believe that the crowd that's lining the road to Jerusalem was the same crowd which filled Pilate's courtyard on Friday. Quite the opposite, actually. The Gospels make plain that the crowd that's lining the road to Jerusalem and welcoming Jesus into the holy city with shouts of praise are actually pilgrims from Galilee who have traveled with him all in that that long, arduous journey leading up into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. For instance, Luke chapter 19, verse 37 says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So who is it that's lining the streets? They're his disciples. Not just the 12, but the whole group of his followers that had heard his teaching, had observed his miracles, and had followed him during his Galilean ministry. They're the folks who got it. They understood the significance of what Jesus was doing on that donkey. They were his disciples, his followers, who had heard him teach, seen his miracles. Their lives had been changed by his power. And to them, Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the promised king. And they were honoring him as such. But there's another group that are present that day as well. Mark does not record their reaction, but Luke and John do. Not only was there the crowd of Jesus' Galilean disciples, there was also a large group of Pharisees present. And they too were making their trek to Jerusalem for the feast. Now for the Pharisees, Jesus is not the honored king. They did not throw their cloaks on the road before him. They did not wave their palm branches in the air. They did not shout, Hosanna. They did not get it. They were not impressed. They did not rejoice. They did not believe. They did not honor Jesus 
They hated him. They seethed with anger at what they considered to be an outrageous display of emotion and affection and praise for someone that they considered to be a blasphemous pretender. Luke records that in response to the shouts of the crowd, Luke 19, 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones would cry out. John writes that when the Pharisees saw that they had been unsuccessful in their attempt to quench the messianic fever that they were afraid was sweeping all the way through Jerusalem, that they said to one another, we are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. (laughs) It's quite a crowd there lining the road to Jerusalem. The throngs that are shouting Hosanna. And it's very disturbing to those who do not believe. So I have a question. What makes the difference between the crowd that received him into Jerusalem as the long-awaited king, the Messiah, the Savior, and those who grumbled at the worship that he was receiving? What makes the difference between those who received him as the honored king and those who hated him and despised him and sought his death. Underneath everything, if you strip away all of the externals, what makes the difference? Why did the crowd understand the sign of the donkey's cult while the Pharisees missed it? Why did the crowd rejoice at Jesus' coming while the Pharisees resented it? Why did the crowd love the praise of Jesus, while the Pharisees hated it? The answer lies in in Jesus' response to Pilate that I read at the very beginning. You remember Jesus said, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth, but only those who are of the truth listen to my voice and honor me as king. Pilate, for instance, was not of the truth. What is truth? He had replied to Jesus. Pilate didn't care about the truth. He didn't care about justice. He cared about political expediency. He cared about keeping his job, and his job depended on keeping the Jews happy and keeping Jerusalem quiet. That's why he had a man whom he repeatedly testified that he knew to be innocent, scourged and crucified, and let a man who was a known insurrectionist and murderer go free. People who are of the truth don't do things like that. Therefore, Pilate could not receive Jesus as a king because he was not of the truth. And neither were the Pharisees. I want you to think about all that they've seen and all that they've heard for three years now. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead raised. They've heard the teaching. They've heard Jesus teach with authority, not like the scribes, not like the rabbis. 
They were even faced with the indisputable evidence of the resurrection of Lazarus of Bethany, which had occurred just a few months before and only two miles away from Jerusalem. According to John's gospel, when the chief priests and the Pharisees were confronted with the evidence of the resurrection of Lazarus, they made no attempt to deny that it had actually happened. Why? Because they couldn't. Lazarus had been dead four days. And John is careful to tell us there were all kinds of witnesses to the fact that he was dead, that he was buried, and that he rose again. So what did the Pharisees do in the face of this undeniable evidence of Jesus' miraculous power? John eleven fifty three, they made plans to kill him. Why? How? I mean, why do they hate Jesus so much? And how could they be so blind to the truth? Again, I think Jesus supplies the answer to our question with these words found in John chapter 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Pharisees don't love the truth. They hate the truth. They would rather live in this lie, believing that they're righteous, believing that they're the religious elite in Israel, believing that they're at the front of the line, waiting to get into heaven. And that's why they hate Jesus so much, because he came to bear witness to the truth that they were, in fact, unrighteous, that they, of all people, were in need of repentance and salvation. And that's why they rejected the only king who could have saved them. So the question I have for you this morning is, what what about you? Are you of the truth? Or to state it another way, would you rather live the lie, believing that you are good, believing that you're in the right, believing that you're fine, that there's nothing to worry about, even though your conscience gnaws at you in the sleepless hours of the night and the conviction of the Holy Spirit hammers away at you when the truth of the word is preached? Or will you come to the light and receive the truth? Now, I want you to make no mistake. When you come to the light, it hurts. It hurts having your deeds exposed. It's like having an infection lanced. It hurts. But after the hurt comes the healing. And then you will be of the truth, and the truth will set you free, and you will honor Jesus as the king that he is. The difference between those who receive Jesus as king and those who reject Jesus is whether or not you are willing to bring forth your sins to the light, to bring them to Jesus in order that he might 
heal them and forgive them and cleanse them. Or whether you want to keep all of those sins hidden for fear that they be exposed, for fear that people may find out what you really think about, what you really desire, who you really are when no one else is looking. Jesus is a king of light. His kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And only those who hate their sin more than they hate the shame that comes from people knowing their sin will bring their deeds out, drag them into the light in order that Jesus may heal them. The Pharisees did not do that, and therefore they rejected him. Well, there's one more aspect of Jesus' kingship that I want to draw out of the triumphal entry, and it doesn't come from Mark's version. It comes from Luke's. But I think it's important to draw out this morning an accurate picture of just what kind of king Jesus is. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. Luke says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Just pause there. Let it sink in. Luke's talking about the triumphal entry, right? Garments are laid out on the road. Palm branches are being waved. Joyous crowds are shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when he comes and approaches the gates of the city, Jesus dissolves into uncontrollable weeping. Why? He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is a passionate king. Now by passionate, I mean to convey that Jesus is not the the stoic, steel-faced Jesus of Renaissance art. The Bible never presents him in that way as stoic and emotionless, as if somehow emotions were beneath him, as if he were somehow less human than we are. On the contrary, when you read the Gospels, you will find a Jesus who is possessed of such intensity of holy emotion that he's unmatched in the history of the human race because his emotion is unclouded by sin. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over their unbelief. He wept over their rejection He wept over their coming judgment, judgment which, by the way, he himself would mete out. 
See, with these words, Jesus is predicting the fall of Jerusalem that would occur 40 years later when the Jews would rebel against their Roman authorities and the Roman general Titus would come with all of his legions and all of their might and they would lay siege to the city and eventually raise it to the ground, just burned it to rubble. That was Jesus' judgment upon their unbelief, upon their rejection of their Messiah. And it was good, and it was holy, and it was just. And yet he wept. He wept over it because Jesus delights in mercy and not in judgment. And he wept over it because he really, truly, deeply loves sinners. Have you ever wept over someone's unbelief and over the judgment which they face? It seems to me that Jesus is more human than we are. He wept. He wept because he came to his own and his own received him not. He wept because their king that they had waited for was coming to them and they didn't recognize him. He wept because they did not know the things that make for peace and they did not know the time of their visitation. And he wept because such blindness and unbelief is damning. He wept because in their sin and their pride they missed it. And they had sinned away the day of mercy. So which crowd on that Palm Sunday represents your response to the king. I want you to search your heart. I want you to examine yourself. Where do you find your kinship? If you could transplant yourself 2,000 years ago, Palm Sunday, AD 30, on the road outside to Jerusalem, would you find yourself among the crowd lining the road to Jerusalem, rejoicing in the coming of your king, crying out for his salvation, following in his train as he leads in triumphal procession into Zion? Or would you find yourself among the Pharisees and the other inhabitants of Jerusalem who were content in their religiosity, content in their church going, content in their Bible reading, content in their tithes and their offerings, their religious checklist that they fastidiously checked off, doing everything that needed to be done, and rejecting a Jesus who has this annoying tendency of unveiling your pride and exposing your sin and exposing your weakness and telling you things like, If anyone would come after me, he's got to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me and go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. A Jesus who demands from you everything. A Jesus who demands from you what it is not in your natural power to give. And therefore rejecting him because... You don't like having your sins exposed. 
You don't feel yourself in need of a savior. You want no king. Least of all, one who calls you to repentance and self-denial and sacrifice. So, there you are, on the road leading into Jerusalem. Are you with those who praise his name and receive him gladly? Those whom Jesus has come to save? Or are you with those for whom Jesus weeps? The difference lies in how you receive the king. So I want to take you back to the scene in Jerusalem on Good Friday. It's now approaching 9 o'clock in the morning. The sun is climbing high. It's going to be a warm day in early spring. Courtyard of the governor's palace, the praetorium. There up on the steps, there sits Pilate in the judgment seat. And beside him stands a figure in a purple robe, a crown of thorns upon his brow, beaten, bloodied, slumped over from exhaustion and pain, a rather pitiful figure sitting next to the the glory and the gold of Rome. Pilate looks out over the crowd and he says, Behold your king. This guy. Beaten, bloodied, scourged, about to be crucified. Behold your king. Truer words had never been spoken. But the crowd was in an uproar. They had been whipped into a frenzy. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate responded, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest spoke for the crowd. We have no king but Caesar. And with that, Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. So I say to you the words that Pilate said to the Jews that morning. Behold your king. Is this the kind of king you want? Is this the kind of king you trust? Is this the kind of king that you worship? Behold your king. He is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Behold, your king is coming to you. On Friday, we'll talk about what this king has done. But Zechariah tells us that he's come to make peace between you and your God through his death on the cross. So First Baptist Nick said, do not miss the day of his visitation. Receive him as king. Trust him as king. Worship him as king. Cry out to him as king. Rejoice in him as king. And follow him as king.